This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast, a podcast with a worldwide listenership that explores the broad world of preservation from every angle, from drones to mudlarking and everything in between. Now, let's get preserving. So, like, I feel like a lot of Americans get this sense, and I think that this is sort of like a, just a generally Amer- American thing. Like, we always think like we're the best or we are the first at something. <laughs> um, is preservation an American thing, or is does the impulse go back much further? Yes, it goes back much further, and I think it's quite possible that that impulse is as old as humanity. I've always been fascinated with the story of preservation, not just what we preserve, but why we preserve. The early origin story of American preservation is one that is often wrapped in myth and legend, and so this week's guest was a great get, someone with the academic credentials to break down this topic and help us understand the rest of the preservation story. This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast. Today, we're thrilled to have Dr. Whitney Martenko with us, who is an associate professor of history at Villanova University. Um, and in addition to all of that, she has also recently published a book called Historic Real Estate, Market Morality and the Politics of Preservation in the Early United States. And we're looking forward to unpacking what all of that means um, and really a great topic for PreserveCast, really at the heart of what we talk about. But before we get there, um, we'd love to to learn a little bit more about you. Um, So tell us about your background. Where did you get your start and when did you develop sort of this passion for history, especially sort of this niche of history, which is the history of preservation itself? Yeah, thank you so much for having me on, Nick. I'm always happy to talk about how I got my start and my interest in history and historic preservation because it really did start with where I grew up. Um, I grew up in Chillicothe, Ohio, um, which is on the edge of Appalachian, Ohio. And I, I grew up in a place that I guess it's kind of a cliche to say, but it was so rich with history. Um, I grew up visiting um, national park sites that were um, built around indigenous earthworks, um, mounds that they're often called. Um, I grew up going to what's called Adina Mansion, which is a home built by or designed by, I should say, Latrobe, one of the few extant houses designed by Latrobe still in the United States. And I grew up, I have to give a shout out to my local historical society, the Ross County Historical Society in Chillicothe, Ohio, that had great children's programs, including walking architectural tours for children. Um, So, you know, I, I grew up in a place where I felt like interest in history and in the built environment was really cultivated um, and cultivated specifically for young people. So when I went to college, I was already interested in history. Um, I went, I got a degree, an undergraduate degree in history at Harvard. And there I just had the world of material culture uh, and material culture studies opened to me by um, historians like Laurel Ulrich um, and Ivan Gaskell and anthropologists and art historians there. And close to the end of my time in college, the historian Liz Cohen introduced me to the term built environment. And that interest in, in the built environment really carried through and spurred my interest in wanting to go to graduate school and to get a PhD at a place where I could study in a history department, but also work with historians who were grounded, um, who were based in an architecture school. And so I ended up going to the University of Virginia where I could study 
the early United States with um, my advisor, Peter Onuf, but also do that um, by learning from architectural historians like Lewis Nelson, Del Upton, um, Sheila Crane, and Maury McGinnis, who is an art historian as well. That's that's pretty cool. And, and uh, for those um, architecture and history nerds listening who, um, you know, know those names. Those are some big names. I mean, Del Upton is like sort of like in the pantheon of, of those names. So it's very cool that you got to study with those folks. And obviously it comes through in the book and just the, the, the level of detail and sort of this look at how preservation comes together and, and how it is so influenced by the market. And we're going to jump into all of that, but maybe take a step back. Um, since you have this really interesting kind of background and academic um, pursuit in sort of understanding preservation and its interconnection, sort of the histo- historiography of preservation. But um, talk to us about the impulse to preserve. So like, I feel like a lot of Americans get this sense. And I think that this is sort of like a, just a generally Amer- American thing. Like we always think like we're the best or we are the first or something. <laughs> um, but is, is preservation an American thing or is, does the impulse go back much further? Yes, it goes back much further. And I think it's quite possible that that impulse is as old as humanity. Um, Americans in the United States certainly did not invent historic preservation. Um, And in fact, they were very much in conversation both with historical examples of historic preservation that came before them, but also contemporary efforts in other parts of the world that were going on in the late 18th and the 19th century. So in my book, for instance, I write about how the New Englanders who planned the town of Marietta, Ohio, um, which was then in the Northwest Territory along the Ohio River, when those New Englanders planned Marietta in the 1780s, they were drawing on examples of preservation from Renaissance Rome and and even before. Um, Rufus Putnam, who is one of these men from Massachusetts, was the main architect of the town plan of Marietta. And he, when he got to the site along the Ohio River, um, he adjusted the streets in what had been a traditionally just a straight up gridded city. He adjusted them to create town squares around indigenous earthworks that were on the site. Some of these were conical mounds, some of them were platform mounds. Um, And Rufus Putnam created these town squares around these monuments monuments because he felt that they were, in his word, ancient monuments that showed the ancient history of America. Um, And he and other leaders who were creating this town gave gave these earthworks uh, names that were derived from the hills and historic sites of Rome. And he was very much aware um, of the history of preserving ancient sites in Rome itself. So in the sixth century, the Ostrogothic ruler Theodoric had characterized himself um, as heir to an ancient Roman empire by attending to the preservation of classical structures in the city. And he proclaimed that his care for the historic urban fabric, um, or he used it to to curry favor with Romans who had maintained these vestiges um, of the classical era under um, different rulers. And in the next millennium, Renaissance urban planners in Rome made preservation a guiding principle for renovating the city as well. 
So particularly after Pope Martin V ordered more attention to the preservation of classical landmarks in 1420, papal administrators and city officials shaped preservation legislation in Rome and its enforcement to gain power in shaping the modern contours of Rome. And so in Marietta, these New Englanders who were building a new town really engaged in the same strategy of preservation to portray themselves as heirs to an ancient American Republic. Again, very much in conversation with this history of ancient Rome. And they used the urban plan of Marietta to position the United States um, as a sovereign and a peaceful nation that was in their minds reviving civil society along the Ohio River. Um, of course, it's important to know that just like the folks in Rome who were preserving classical sites to, um, to garner political power, that's exactly what these men were doing in the 1780s in Marietta. So preservation really was a tactic of imperial expansion that in many ways preserved some sites but perpetuated destruction of others and perpetuated violence against um, indigenous residents of the area. It's so interesting because I think, you know, the, the next topic I want to get into, which is, you know, coming to America, you know, so we've, we've gone back a couple millennia and talked about, uh, you know, a Pope. And, uh, so we've, we've covered some ground here in terms of preservation, which is very cool. Cause I think that, that a lot of people don't get that sort of broader sense of preservation, but, um, you know, there, there's so much here is tied up, you know, the, the, the sort of the classic story, pick up a standard textbook of preservation, and it all says it starts with the Mount Vernon Ladies Association. And so you've gone back, obviously, just even in your first answer to the 1780s and, um, you know, Ohio and preservation of native resources, which is interesting. Is there, you know, where does the legend come from? Why do you, do you have any sense for why we why why we are so wedded to this idea of Mount Vernon is it because it's the first president is it because it tells the right story is it what why 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 do we go there and and I'm also curious too why do so many people get it wrong like obviously you're just talking about something that is well documented it happened um but most of the textbooks and most of the preservation courses across the country are not even talking about that. They're still starting with what I guess is almost kind of like a legend at this point. So what, what's that all about? What's with the Mount Vernon myth? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think maybe one factor is that the Mount Vernon Ladies Association really was successful. Um, they were successful in gaining really wide support for their um, campaign to raise money in the 1850s to buy Mount Vernon. And they were successful in creating a historic site that thousands, right, maybe even, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people visit every single year to this day. So, you know, I think part of the reason that, you know, histories of historic preservation often start with the Mount Vernon Ladies Association is really a testament to their popularity at their time in, in their moment, but also the continued popularity 
um, of Mount Vernon as a historical site today. So, you know, it's not a myth in the sense that, you know, they, they really did raise a lot of money. They were distinctive, I think, in garnering support and notoriety truly across the nation in the 1850s in a way that was um, sort of a a new level of support, we might say. Um, But at the same time, my book really reframes this and says this was really the outgrowth of a lot of ongoing conversations that had happened um, over the previous 75 years to, to the moment that they started their campaign to buy Mount Vernon. And we see that both in the, the corporate form that the Mount Vernon Ladies Associ- Association um, created for themselves. We see that in attention to the historic home of what we might call, you know, the, the great men of history. Um, we can see a connection there back to Europe and older models of preservation as well. By the 18th century, many um, towns had created support for house museums of famous men like Petrarch and John Milton and Martin Luther, um, and maybe even most notably William Shakespeare, right? So by the 18th century, you had the homes of these famous figures becoming tourist sites. Um, yeah, we got into that into an, in another episode, a previous episode of PreserveCast, actually, I forget which one it was, but um, we talked about how even in... Um, you know, 18th and 19th century writings, um, there, there's conversations about going and visiting um, historic homes and like that's a part of it. Um, so yeah, it's it's interesting. There's sort of, there's, we get caught up in this idea that Mount Vernon is the, you know, the, the first historic house museum. Of course, that's not the case. Um, and, you know, I think it's interesting, like a, a, a central theme to your work, and maybe we can really kind of dive into this, is sort of this interconnectedness between preservation and sort of the, the capitalist system. And I mean, you even kind of touched on it with, you know, you're laying out a town, right? Well, laying out a town is, is obviously creating a market and is kind of like a speculative real estate um, operation and you're building in some historic amenities into the middle of that. So it, it obviously, in a very um, literal sense, kind of ties um, real estate in the market system and preservation altogether. Um, but, I, you know, I'm curious, um, do we really only preserve what's marketable and you know, maybe we'll follow up on that about places that aren't so marketable. But, but this this central theme between the, the real estate preservation and capitalism, what's all there? What should people know about? And and I guess maybe by extension, were you surprised by anything that you found? Yeah. So the central argument of my book, as you mentioned, is that you know many residents of the early United States, really starting with that moment right after the American Revolution engaged in preservation to work out the practical applications of a central concern of the new nation and really the early modern world. And that was the relationship between the so-called public good and private profit. So historic sites in this era, I argue, made really compelling places to test this correlation between the public and the private 
because there were places where the materiality of the past and the materiality of the market economy met. So old churches and houses and indigenous earthworks and town squares, all of these places weren't just symbols of the past or vessels for memory, but they were in fact real estate in a fully commoditized environment. And in the early U.S., advocates of preservation made their plans a principal strategy for really creating a new order of property and power promised by revolutionary principles. So this is where, again, we can make these comparisons with Europe. And we can say, unlike leaders of post-revolutionary regimes in France, U.S. citizens did not make historic sites the property of the national government. And instead, they determined to let properties of public interest really emerge from private holdings. So they defined architectural permanence achieved through preservation really as a statement of civic virtue, um, a willingness to balance communal and personal interests. And in this way, they embraced the strictures of private property and a capitalist economy by promising to make it moral. Yeah, but what do you mean by that? I want to jump in there because that yeah. might, I, I'm, I'm thinking of, you know, listeners kind of poking at that. What does that mean by making it moral? Yeah, so I think that, you know, what I show in the book is that people in the early U.S. really dialed in on certain types of sites and certain types of property because they felt that they um, embodied some really crucial questions about what was this new nation going to be and how was the changing economy affecting society. So for instance, right after the revolution, a lot of people dialed in on corporate properties because they were unsure, is, is are corporations going to serve the public good? Are they really going to be a vehicle for consolidating power, not just politically, but financially and economically? So advocates of preservation said, look, we can use corporations to really serve the common good, right? We can use corporations to buy and manage historic properties, not for um, selling to real estate developers, to um, to make the most money they can, right? But we can use corporations to hold property in perpetuity for the common good apart from development. So they weren't trying to say that the, the economic development should stop, right? But they said preservation can be a, a way of limiting what's for sale, right? Of creating limits on speculative markets um, to set sites apart and say, okay, some places are special and should be treated in a different way. And by doing so, we can create a better society in this new nation. Which is funny because today, the, the, the modern outgrowth of that is the historic district, right? It holds mm-hmm. back the forces of um, the market from acting in ways in which would be counter to, I guess, what you might consider moral. Yeah, exactly. And, I, you know, to be clear, I'm not making an argument that these early advocates of preservation were or we're not moral, right? right? I'm interested in the construction of this idea. So I think, you know, on first pass, it might sound like I'm saying that they were in fact moral, but what I'm saying is that they were trying to construct the idea that preservation in its most ideal form could be a way of um, perpetuating capitalist markets uh, of labor, of land, um, of, of goods, 
but by sort of managing or limiting it. But I think, again, it's important to recognize the ways that many purveyors of preservation attempted to sell this idea for personal profit, or they enslaved people, or they used preservation as a means of colonization. So, you know, as a historian, I'm less interested in saying these people were or were not moral and more interested in how they constructed this idea of preservation that I think, you know, we're still de- dealing with the legacy of it today. I think that was a good morality disclaimer. Yeah. <laughs> um, so um, why don't we take a quick break here? And then when we come back, let's talk about what this means for places that aren't marketable and what this means for preservation moving forward. Hey, it's Nick here, and I want to remind you briefly that your support is what makes this podcast possible. To keep hearing important stories like this one, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, and follow along on social media at PreserveCast. You can also continue supporting the podcast with a donation at PreserveCast.org. PreserveCast is sponsored by the 1772 Foundation and powered by Preservation Maryland, a nonprofit organization that believes we all succeed when we all know more about our past. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. Today, we are joined by Dr. Whitney Martinko, who is a uh, associate professor of history at Villanova. And we've been talking all about her book, which goes under the title, Historic Real Estate, Market Morality, and the Politics of Preservation in the Early United States, which you can pick up at your local independent bookseller. Um, and uh, perfect uh, book uh, to, to sit in and dig into uh, as we all uh, make our way through the, the never-ending quarantine. Um, and, you know, before we, we took our break, we were talking about sort of this interconnectedness, really the central theme of your, your research and your book, between real estate, preservation, and capitalism, and sort of this idea of morality, and, and how all of these things play together. And that we, you know, in some cases, or in many cases, we preserve what is marketable, or what has sort of a, a you know, a, a market value to it. So, but where does that leave slave cabins, and tenements, and, you know, the the everyday vernacular um and is our inability or our difficulty in preserving those places just a profound lasting legacy of where we came from are we has has history doomed us you're right to draw attention to these kinds of buildings because it helps us to see even when we are paying attention to these early advocates of preservation who you know really were responsible for keeping a lot of buildings that we still value standing um, that many buildings many sites were not valued by these same people right many sites were destroyed by these same people um, and so you're right that many of these were homes of enslaved people um, indigenous people um, impoverished people um, and we have to deal, I think we should deal with the complexity of early advocates of preservation by saying, you know, they weren't some people who were just ahead of their time or saviors of of history that um, they overlooked many things uh, that, that we wish we had today, right, to tell a fuller history of um, the United States. So I'm curious, I mean, is it is that is the is the 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 market component to this is that the legacy that makes it so difficult 
to protect these places that because one of the things that you mentioned which i think is interesting and, and worth kind of like pulling back out is you you talk about how or you in one of your answers earlier you you said that there was sort of this distinction that we were gonna there was going to be sort of these civically held places but they would be basically privately held that we wouldn't have public ownership um and it would take some time until we have public ownership of historic places um I've, I've written a little bit about how, you know, some of those first forays were actually battlefield preservation, that it was some of the first times that the government was like, okay, we're going to protect historic places and we're going to own them. Um, and I'm sure that there's other examples of that, but that was sort of one of the larger early ones. And there's some case history on all that and everything. But I, I'm curious, like, is, is this the legacy um, that, the the way in which we do this that is so market driven is is that what prevents us from being able to tackle these more difficult structures i think so um i think that was certainly the case in the past and you know one thing i talk about in the book was that you know people who profited from this performance of the public good right sometimes that was financial profit but sometimes that was social profit, right? They, they wanted to make the right connect, connections, right? Sometimes it was political profit that they wanted to, you know, pitch themselves as, as caring about a place or a structure that perhaps would have been removed by the market. And when we look at it like that, we can see that, you know, there are a lot of places that would just did not resonate um, even when we open our minds to thinking about more like a social marketplace, right? Or a political marketplace. So in the 19th century, there really was no room for sort of making the case that somebody was performing a, a public good by preserving um, enslaved housing. Um, and, you know, I think that we're in a place today that, um, you know, there, there is a sense that this is a necessary and a valuable type of, of building. It's a necessary part of telling full and difficult histories about the United States. But at the same time, you know, we're not entirely outside of the notion that these places still have to meet a bottom line, right, to raise money from donors, to pay fair wages to their employees. And, you know, that's where at the end of my book, I really, you know, take a step back and think about what does this history of preservation really mean for us today? And I think that at best, it can help us really think about our own, um, the way we situate ourselves and perhaps our, you know, our workplaces or our own projects of preservation more broadly in our own society and economy, right? We are historical actors. And when we make an argument to preserve a place, whether it's a you know, downtown historic district or a house museum, that we, we are acting as economic actors when we decide who to hire, who to invite to the table, um, what wages to pay interns or entry-level workers. So sort of a roundabout way of getting to the issue of market. No, it, it but is. It's, it's a difficult one. It is. I am also pleased to say, uh, a, just a side note, that Preservation Maryland only pays our interns. Um, so, Excellent. Yes. <laughs> um, and, uh, but, but, so, I mean, that was kind of maybe like where I wanted to head and sort of as we kind of draw to a conclusion here, like, 
for purveyors of history, and I like calling them historical actors. I think I'm, that's going to be my new uh, tagline. Um, but uh, for people who are doing this work, and we have a lot of people who are the purveyors of preservation listening um, all across the country, all across the world for that matter. Um, what, based on your research and what you've seen and sort of the, I guess, the mistakes that were made um, and the the legacy of some of these decisions and the way in which we make these choices. And obviously picking up the book and reading it would be a good place for these purveyors to start. Um, and you again, you can, you can buy that and we have a link in the show notes. Um, but... Um, any any thoughts on 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 ways in which preservationists can approach these issues can consider this this concern as they do their work i mean i, I think you were kind of getting at that with you know paying interns and um making sure you're engaging the right people but um do you see things that are missing um that that you would like to to see fixed um that really kind of ties into um, the research that you've done? Like, do, do you see legacies of this playing out that you wish would be resolved? Yeah, I think that there are a couple of key points that I came to in writing my book and thinking about its application for preservation um, or even public history, um, public historians today. You know, I think one of them that I hit on is, is really thinking about the history of colonization in the United States that, that we see that the project of making history and of preserving places in the United States oftentimes is so deeply embedded in um, a, a colonized view of, of North America that I think preservation can, can be a place where we do a better job of confronting not only the fact that North America and the United States is uh, colonizing um, as a colonized place, but also that the very act of doing history is one of the central ways of um, of perpetuating this colonization and of managing land, of course. And I think that one way to get at this is just you know confronting the complex histories of sites uh, like you know like the ones I talk about in my book, but um, sites across North America. Um, one way to do this, I think, is considering histories of both material change and of the language that has been used to describe uh, historic sites or preservation over the years. And I think that you know, confronting these complex histories can be a way of telling uh, a layered history. You know, this is a term I think that a lot of preservationists and historians used, um, but can also bring to light exclusions and transformations and demolitions that were enacted in order to secure particular historic sites today. Um, I think that that approach could potentially help make visible the ways that people in different times and in different places have shaped pro projects of preservation to exert power and sometimes to resist power. And to call attention to the power of architectural preservation, really to do the same today. Um, and I guess I also believe that that's one way of helping a wider variety of people to see how historic places can matter to them and can sort of help us to make arguments about, you know, what variations of a place 
constitute historical integrity of a building, right? Because sort of this, uh, this argument about integrity of a building or a place is often something that is uh, a hard bar for some sites to clear if sites have been associated with histories of up- underrepresented people, whether that be LGBTQ sites or women's history or um, Black Americans or Indigenous Americans. And I guess finally, I will say that, you know, I said this earlier, but I think that, you know, preservationists and public historians really need to see themselves as economic and social actors in the decisions that we make about um, our professions or our pastimes. You know, I think that when we think about the public good of preservation, we should be thinking about who we hire and how much we pay them and, you know, why exactly we think that a certain building should stand the test of time um, and how. So I think, you know, in a lot of places, I live in Philadelphia, we're facing a crisis of demolition in the built environment. But I think also a bit more broadly, we're facing a crisis of inequality in, in historic preservation, in its whiteness, in its wealth, and in its labor practices. So, you know, ultimately, I hope that thinking about history and history of sites can really help us confront these issues um, and help us to see that our fundamental definitions of preservation as a, preser- as a practice, really, and as an ethic, Um, continues to shape our values in our world today and ultimately our approaches to it are a statement of how we value people and not just of buildings. Yeah. Putting people at the center of it is, is critical. And I think that's a, like a a fantastic place to kind of wrap that thought um, that at the end of the day, it is, it is, it is about people. It's not just about the buildings. Um, So, Obviously, you really know your stuff about this. This is like super interesting. Um, and it's so good to know that somebody like you out th- is out there publishing and researching and thinking about these things because it's very easy to be caught as a purveyor, sort of just doing the work and not having a chance to think about um, why it is we do the things that we do. Um, so uh, people can pick up the book at um, you know whatever bookseller they go to, their independent bookshop. Um, and again, the title is Historic Real Estate, Market Morality, and the Politics of Preservation in the Early United States. Um, so for people who want to learn more about you or they want to um, find out what else you're working on, where can listeners find your work? Yes, you can find me on Twitter. My handle is at Whitney Martinko. And hopefully my new website will be up by the time that this airs. It's www.whitneymartinko.com. And until then, you can find my faculty page at Villanova University. It has links to blog posts I've written and to some online writing. You can find it by Googling Whitney Martinko Villanova. Perfect. And the most difficult question we ask anyone who comes on the show, what is your favorite historic site or place? That is a really difficult question. Uh, I will I will cheat maybe and uh, name two. One in my hometown and one where I live today. Um, I would say that my favorite historic site in Ross County, Ohio is a new one. It's called Junction Earthworks. It is uh, along Paint Creek and it's managed by a group called Ark of Appalachia. Um, There are no earthworks remaining above ground, but it's a great site um, with new interpretation about indigenous culture and the earthworks that stood there. Um, 
during what's often called the Hopewell era. And uh, here in Philadelphia, one of my favorite historic sites is the Woodlands. It is a historic rural cemetery that's now in the heart of West Philadelphia. And I think that they are a great example of how historic sites can serve historic missions uh, while also engaging, changing communities with new activities on site. Well, two fantastic answers. And of course, they tie back to the central theme of your book and the recommendations you make. Um, It's been so much fun. I can't wait to uh, read whatever it is you write next. Uh, And uh, I encourage people to head out, pick up the book. um, And thank you so much for joining us today and all the great work that you're doing. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's story, head over to PreserveCast.org for show notes and our collection of previous episodes. Don't forget to engage with this podcast by subscribing, commenting, and leaving a review. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PreserveCast for even more. PreserveCast is currently recorded in Walkersville, Maryland, and sponsored by the 1772 Foundation, and powered by Preservation Maryland. Thanks for listening and keep on preserving.